Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, Nord VPN. Of course, you see it's Nord Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. just got a message from the uh, company who... Um, the company? The company who were responsible for our taxi drive-in. Okay. Did we want to tip the taxi driver? No. Yeah, here's my tip. Get a map. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so <laughs> our um, cab driver today arrived at my house where Mark has been living in the caravan for a while, as you know, and his opening words were, where is this? <laughs> so I, I said, what, sorry? He said, where are we? <laughs> and it sort of went... <laughs> downhill down, from there. Downhill from there. The weird thing was, he had a sat-nav, but it appeared not to know where it was. Yeah. It was like, it, it was as confused as anyone else. I'd said a cab from... I had got horrendously lost and had got on the wrong train out of Houston and ended up in Cheltenham when I should have been in Exeter. Right. And... Through a long convoluted thing, I ended up in like in a minicab, going from Cheltenham to Exeter, which is quite a long journey. It is. And as we set off, having given all the instructions to uh, the place to take me, the taxi driver said, "Is this near London?" I said, "Sorry," he said, "Is Exeter near London?" <laughs> so that was. I had been planning to sleep because it was like one in the morning. Yeah. But I decided I should probably stay awake. When we used to broadcast out of uh, White City. Oh, um, yeah. You remember back up in back up in the day. And um, if you come out of White City, there's a road called the Westway. Yes. Which connects that part of London with central London. You literally go onto it and you drive in a straight line. I mean, it's always a traffic jam, but it's a straight line into the centre of London. And the Westway is my favourite road because if you... St- it goes out. The busiest you know. and most polluted road in Europe. Five miles out of London on the Western Avenue must have been a wonder when it was brand new. Talking about the splendour of the Hoover factory, I know that you'd agree if you'd have seen it too. But, so I, there was a cab company immediately opposite the establishment for which we worked. And uh, and I thought, for, I won't get a train, I'll get a cab. And he said, where are you going? I said, uh, such such a cinema. He said, where's that? I said, it's the West End. He went, West End? I went, yes, yeah, the West End. Just go to the West Way and just go on the way. So... Okay, fine, so we got in the car, got onto the Westway, so to the right is London. He turned left. I went, where are you going? He went, you said go west. I said, the west end of London. There is only one. <laughs> There's no way, if driving is your job, that you would think <laughs> west end meant west. go west, young man. Westwood ho. Also, I once did this, I don't know what I told you this, um, I, I, did, I did a thing in Bristol, and my friend Martin Barker was there, and I had to get back to... Hello, Martin. I had, I had to get back to Wales, to, to Wells, and I in said Somerset. To, yeah, because I was doing a thing with it must have been Glastonbury or something. I said to Martin, 
do you know how to get to Wales for me? He said, yeah, you come out and you go left, you go on the thing. And I came out and I went left and I went on the thing and I found myself on a bridge and I rang him. I said, Martin, I'm going the wrong way. He went, no, you, Wales is that way. I went, not Wales. With hilarious consequences. <laughs> With hilarious consequences. That would have been funny if I hadn't said Wales at the beginning. Yeah. I kind of blew the punchline. No, it's fine. I was, I was there you for the joke. You were there joke. anyway. I absolutely was there for the yeah. joke. Uh, later on uh, in this programme, uh, Simon Pegg is going to be talking about Mission Impossible. Now, the reason this is straddling last week and this week, because you gave the full uh, fulsome review last week, mm -hmm. is because it came out on Monday. It did. For, is, that, is there a reason? So it has it'll a give it, It'll give it the biggest opening weekend. As if it needed it. In history. It could have opened, it could have opened <laughs> Sunday morning at 3am and it would still have been absolutely huge. Anyway, so there'd be some more impossible, 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 uh, impossible. 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 Is that the Sean Connery It version? is. Absolutely. He makes a, a, a surprise. Simon Pegg. Uh, what else are we talking about? Uh, Medusa, which is a Brazilian fantasy horror. Uh, Squaring the Circle, which is a documentary about, well, as you would say, hypnosis. Hypnosis. Yes, that's how it's written, isn't it? It is. Who are the company that designed some of the most iconic album covers of our lifetime. Yes. Uh, and also uh, While We Watch, which is a documentary about uh, news in India, which is uh, very gripping stuff. And of course, we will be talking to Simon Pegg, who I was very pleased to see picked up the photograph of my. Fudge my hat yes. notes and put it on his Instagram. As a result of which, I got a message from one of the editors, or maybe the editor of Mission Impossible, saying, Can I have that framed? Which seems like the least you could do. It's really. fine. I'm not doing anything with it. Uh, then in our extra takes, what are you reviewing there? Uh, in extra takes, we're going to be reviewing, has to move down to see what else we are reviewing. Uh, what else am I reviewing? The Deepest Breath. The Deepest Breath, which is a Might documentary. Well just ask my... Yeah, and also a kind of kidnapping. Yeah, I know that. Sorry. Wait, it doesn't say it on the... I need it all written on the front page. I've got it. It's fine. It's fine. Where? I know what's happening. Okay. Uh, pretentious Moi, uh, currently Mark Kermode, um, 17. Oh, it does say it there. Exactly. Sorry. Mark Kermode, 15. Sorry. So Mark is uh, falling behind on that. One, one frame back is about extreme sports. Yes. Take it or leave it, you decide it's the extraordinary attorney Wu. Which is, yeah. No, I was about to do it, and then I thought, no, save it till save yes. it till you do it. Save it for the vanguard. Save it for the vanguard. <laughs> uh, you can spot us via Apple Podcasts and all that stuff. Anyway, if you're already a vanguardista, you're a very good person, and as always, we salute. We you. salute you. Thank you very much. Quick reminder that we now ship our merch to colonial commoners in the USA and Australia. Oh yeah, okay. So don't forget. Don't forget way, if you are a colonial commoner uh, and you're in the United States of America. Uh, or Australia, we can get you our fantastic merchandise and think how cool you'll look as you stroll through Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, Boston. Uh, You're trying to think of other places Miami. in Australia. Oh, no, other, in Australia and America. Yeah, and America. Anywhere at all. Yeah, Buffalo. Incidentally. You're wearing a t-shirt. You always ask me to talk about your t-shirt. Why don't you, you talk about your t-shirt? Well, who do you think it is? Why don't you just tell me about it? Gang of Four t-shirt. There you go. No, no wonder I didn't have a clue what you're talking about. You're not, you're not a big Gang of Four fan? No. I told you about my Gang of Three project. You, yes, I? last week. Yeah, after you gave me the vinyl of entertainment. How, how nice was that? We're going to play the whole album. Me, Simon Booth, and A and other person, which should probably end up being Steve, or he doesn't know about that yet. Mm -hmm. We're literally going to play the whole album from beginning to... No, we're not going to play the album. We're going to play the album from beginning to I end. hardly... Whether the audience want it or not. Uh, an email, from, an anonymous email, actually. Uh, dear esteemed production team and the other two, 
A medium-term listener, third-term email, a runner-up in the regional Scouts Chess Championship. I write on the subject of West Wing fans being termed wingnuts. Yes. As raised by a previous correspondent. This is, I think this is genuinely fascinating. This is because I hadn't known this, and I said right-wing wingnuts, and somebody wrote in and said, can you use another word? Yes. Because wingnut, which is now generally taken to mean conspiracy theorist, you know, mm -hmm. lunatic, actually is a, is a word for... People who love the West Wing, particularly the, um, the West Wing podcast. Which I didn't know. So this says, it's, it is common for devoted fans of specific media to have a name for themselves to use in fan communities. And it's a phenomenon I found very interesting, says Anonymous. The naming conventions range wildly from in-universe terms, Hunger Games fans call themselves tributes, to oh, okay. portmanteaus, so adult male My Little Pony fans really? call themselves bronies, I know. I, I mean, is that a big community? Um, anyway, Sorry, I'm just going to take a while to process that. Also, self-deprecation, as in Twilight's Twihards. I don't think I'd want to be a Twihard, because no. in our family that means something it's else completely different. Anyway, but how many... If you are an adult male My Little Pony fan, in fact, if you are a brony, we would like to hear from you, because, you know, this is a community that we've been ignoring, I feel. Yeah, I mean... My little... Anyway, okay. Anonymous continues, these dedicated fandoms often have dense, complex in-jokes and subcultures that you need to follow decades of fandom drama and discussion to understand, and the media in question often becomes secondary to the community around it. Fandom names are very much part of this law, a name to be understood by in the in-crowd to identify themselves from outsiders. I'd be interested to know if your good selves have examples of fandoms you are a part of that have names such as this. Well, well this show basically has accumulated over the years enough in-jokes and self-reverential yes. kind of little bon mots, I think, to keep anyone going. See our Wittipedia page. Yes, Wittertainee is a... That came... I mean, that was an audience thing. It didn't come from us. No, all the best ideas come from, from the audience. We just the audience. Anyway, the anonymous person signs themselves brackets Tolkien Dill, Clandom, Hoovian, and Red Waller. Okay, so Tolkien Dill, so that's Lord of the Rings. Uh, what's the Dill bit? I don't know. Yeah, but it'll, I, yeah. anyway, no, no. presumably that's very funny and clever if you're a Tolkien nut. Okay, what's the second one? Clandom. Clan? Clan? What's Clan? Hoovian is, is, is that is, is that a, is that a, a, a Game of Thrones thing? Clan Hoovian is Doctor Who. Yes. And what was the last one? Red Waller. Go on. I don't know. Uh, is that the Red Wall which the Tories took down at the last election? Oh, that's what it is. No, I don't oh, right, suppose it is for a moment. <laughs> but anyway, this, see, anonymous. Wait, you if you if the Red Wallers and the Brunies had a fight, Brunies, I think. Brunies. They are. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, well, let's dedicate this show to tributes, bronies, twihards, red wallers, hoovians, clandoms, and Tolkien dills. And it's trekkers, isn't it? Not trekkies. They're, it was, they're not mentioned. No, no, but it was, there was always a thing about that, that they was, you, you'd say the wrong one, not you, one would say the wrong one. That they Is that right? Okay. Yes, yeah. uh, more on this, please. Very welcome. Correspondence at covenamayo.com. Um, Ken in Brighton. Uh, hi, both. Quick one to point out that you being a film podcast should probably call chemtrail believers trailers. Ah, very good. I suppose that works, because yeah. we were talking about that yeah. last week. Chemtrail um, believers. Also, we, wow. got a, we got a voice note here from uh, Dr. Curran Raj, NHS surgeon, also has a podcast called The Referral, produced by our good 
friends here okay. at The Take. Um, anyway, he sent us this. Here we go. Hi, Simon. Hi, Mark. It's Dr. Curran. And this festival season, I want to explain why you should desperately avoid deliberately holding in your number twos. The art of defecation relies on timing and reflexes. When you ignore the urge to go, your fecal matter remains in your colon, where increasingly more water is reabsorbed from your stool, making it drier and harder, essentially biological cement in your pipes. Now, this dry, hard stool can be painful when it does eventually exit, and you'll probably need to strain more. If you're consistently doing this, you're putting yourself at risk of hemorrhoids and weakened pelvic floor muscles and beyond. So... Answer the call of nature and do it for the love of your intestines. So, so this podcast has taken a strange turn. That's right, because we were have been talking you about were. how long it's possible to avoid trying hard. That would actually be the name of the podcast. I could do a whole poo podcast called "Trying Hard: The Art of Trying Hard." Uh, anyway, that's uh, Dr. Karen Raj. Thank you, Dr. Karen. Uh, his podcast. I, I did is tell you that a critic in in the best joke ever's made, and I wish I'd made it, said. Asteroid City is such a pain in the butt, they should have called it Hemorrhoid City. Which is very good. And will <laughs> that be is repeated. a good joke. Uh, correspondence at curbedamone.com. What is out that we can go and see? Medusa, which is a really interesting Brazilian film by Anita Rocha de Silveira. And it, this played in Cannes in 2021. It's been doing the festival circuit uh, since then. It is kind of uh, inspired by the giallo of Dario Argento. It also plays like a kind of weird pre-echo of Heather's clueless neon demon because it looks like it's kind of a 70s film. It opens with a, this video, this really strange video, this spider walking dance. You know the spider walking exit where you haven't seen the exit. Somebody turned. I've seen the clip. You see the clip yes. on their on their back, dancing and writhing. And then we see that this is being watched by somebody on their phone. And then we see the person who's watching this on their phone being pursued by a series of masked assailants, women wearing these masks that are like the mask in Eyes Without a Face who then basically beat her up and get her to promise to, uh, to become a, uh, a, a soldier of Christ. What she has to do is that she has to admit that she's been a terrible woman and then say to accept Jesus and become a virtuous woman. They film it on their phones and then they put the film on the internet. We then see them as part of a sort of Christian vanguard group. They are the treasures. There is a male militia as well called the Watchmen. The, they are training for morality duties to police the morality of everyone around them. And then one of them starts telling this story of why it is that they do this thing, going out, these vigilante groups, wearing a mask. I'm going to play you a clip. Obviously, it's not an English language clip. So we'll just explain afterwards yes. what was said during the okay. clip. Aí lá estava ela numa boate, em meio a todos os piores pecados que a gente pode pensar. Todo mundo fantasiado. Até que uma iluminada apareceu. Uma mulher vestida de anjo, com uma máscara branca. Com uma mão, ela foi trazendo um copo com querosene. Com a outra, um isqueiro. Aí ela foi andando, bem devagarzinho, até a Melissa. Fez a única coisa que podia ter sido feita. Tacou fogo na cara dela. Que horror. Não, não, mas não é o fogo dos infernos, é o fogo que limpa. Mas ela morreu? 
So what happened in that clip is they were telling the story of Melissa, a woman from the town who had defamed the town by appearing in a nude scene in a film and by flaunting herself around town. And one day, somebody came into the club where she was wearing a mask and set her on fire. And at the end, is, is she dead? No, she disappeared. Where's she gone? So but also of, they say it wasn't hellfire. It was, it was a, a cleansing, cleansing good fire. Thing. It's a cleansing fire, okay. exactly. So one of them then says, I'm going to go and find her and get a photograph of her because this will be a great warning to anybody who wants to be sinful. But of course, actually what's happening is that these people who are completely sort of, one of the things they do is they post videos online, how to take the perfect Christian selfie. You have to hold it. If you hold the camera too low, that's the view from hell. If you hold the camera too high, well, that's God's eye and that's no one else other than God. You have to do it from, you know, from horizontal. We need to be saved from people like this. Precisely. So the film, as you saw from that, you know, it's kind of pinks and, you know, bright colours. And that's what I meant about the kind of the clueless and the Heathers thing. It's very, very satirical. It is basically a horror fantasy satire that is inspired by the rise of right-wing populism and uh, mad religious uh, belief in return to old-school values. That the, these, the women believe absolutely that women must be subservient to men and uh, you know we must get back to the Old Testament values. But the whole thing is being done in this really kind of wryly, you know, satirical, off-kilter uh, way. So as you're watching it, you understand that there are several layers of the film playing out and the cent one of the central characters then goes off to go undercover to find Melissa and in fact, discovers much more than she bargained for. I I really like this. I loved the way it looked. I mean, it's got these kind of these bright colours that are completely kind of at odds with the darkness of the story. It's got a kind of Suspiria-like edge to it. It's also got a touch of the eyes of Tammy Faye about it. You remember the eyes of Tammy Faye, which I really enjoyed. Tammy Faye Baker. Tammy Faye Baker, yeah. but you remember the film and it was like when they were portraying Tammy Faye Baker, it was, everything was, the brightness was so bright you thought it was going to scorch so It's worth saying just um, in parentheses that the Reverend Steve Peters who is in that movie as the gay pastor yes. uh, died this week. That's right. Um, yes, of course. Which is, it, yeah. And John Ronson um in his podcast, he was talking a lot about Steve Peters. But anyway, that's yes, and John Ronson was actually on the, on Radio Four talking yeah. about him because it was a fascinating, absolutely fascinating story. So essentially, what you've got is on the one hand, you've got a nod to a lot of cult movies, like I said, Eyes Without a Face. Um, there's a touch of Clockwork Orange in the in the way in which the the gang dress. There is this really inventive use of pop songs, like Wishing on a Star, ends up sounding very, very kind of threatening. As does uh, Baby, It's You. And the whole thing is done in this very arch, very sort of smart, socio-political satire way. That if you're if you're a fan of you know Lynch or Argento or any of that kind of that's you know psychodrama horror, that kind of overcranked psychodrama horror, you'll find much in this to enjoy. If you're a fan of kind of political satire, you'll find much in it to enjoy. I mean, the whole thing is really a kind of modern parable about progressive values being attacked by a kind of right-wing popularism that is driven by authoritarianism and body fascism and, you know, all those things that we're, that we're against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, it's in, it, this is Portuguese... Uh, Brazilian. Is Brazilian yeah. Portuguese. And in Brazil, the evangelical church is in bed with the Bolsonaro yeah, folk. And precisely. so that's precisely one of the key markets. This is, this is where it comes from. So, uh, still to come on this rather fabulous edition of the podcast. Squaring the Circle, which is a documentary about hypnosis. We're not going to keep making that joke. But we will. And While We Watch, which is a very interesting documentary about news reporting in India. We'll be back before you can say, without music, life would be a mistake. 
Friedrich Nietzsche. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about, about the, the raising, raising of the, the wrist. Socrates, Socrates himself, himself was permanently, permanently tired and interesting. This episode is brought to you by the curated streaming service Movie. Mark, for our wonderful listeners who already have a movie account, and for those who might be thinking about getting one, could you please tell us what films they can enjoy this May? Certainly, Simon. This month, Movie are launching their Cannes Takeover. You know how much I love Cannes. And in honour of the Cannes Film Festival, which kicks off this month, here is a selection of what they have available to stream in the UK. They have Annette, which is the Leos Carax musical, with uh, music by Sparks, which is absolutely wonderful, and Tokyo Gar, which is the film by uh, German director Wim Wenders who travels to Tokyo to explore the world of one of his cinematic heroes, Yasujiro Ozu. That's Mubi's Can Takeover series. What else? Well, there's also Voila Varda, which is a look back on some of the best of the famous French director. There's Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Bonheur, Vagabond, The Gleaners and I, and The Beaches of Agnes. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Kermit for a whole month of great cinema for free. Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, schmestions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. In our last section, you mentioned Eyes Without a Face twice. Yes. And in my head... You're thinking Billy Idol. Eyes Without a Face. Anyway, uh, my boss um, at Greatest Hits Radio went to see... Billy Idol. Generation generation Sex. Generation Sex. And he took this photograph... Billy Idol looks fantastic. Look, I mean, he he looks okay. exactly the same. Can I say two things about this? Did you yes. see them? Did you see them playing at Glastonbury? The, no. The, okay, fine. Firstly, the leather jacket arrangement. I mean, Billy Idol. Yeah, he's in, he's he's fit. That's as the in, point I'm making. Yeah, it, dress sense not so much. Um, it was a weird one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, apparently he was very good. As I'm just passing that on. Um, what's your, your favourite Billy Idol song? And here's the here's the here's the interesting question. Do you do you consider listeners will have noticed there the setup of the question and then the answer being provided by the question setter? No, I was going Go to ahead. say, do you consider dancing with myself to be Gen X or Billy Idol? I, I couldn't really be bothered to get into the definition of the difference between the two. Really? Okay. Why why should I care? What? Well, because if your answer was going to be dancing with myself, which is the correct answer. It's a question of, is it Billy Idol? Or is it, is it like with Wham or mm. George Michael, you know? Right. Whose careless whisper was it? Right. You don't have a favourite Billy Idol song? Eyes Without a Face, probably. Yeah, that's actually his worst. You see, that what you weren't interested in is my answer. I know, I am interested in your answer. I just thought no, it would be better but, than that. Right, so it wasn't, it wasn't the factually correct answer. No, it's just an opinion that's It's different wrong. to yours. <laughs> well, 
Yes. Hmm. Eyes Without a Face is the answer. Dear E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy. Very good. This is from... I'm sorry, I can't hear you over this record of fascist speeches. That scene is brilliant, isn't it? This is from our um, Swedish correspondent, Oscar. Now, I think last time he wrote, I got this about right. Okay. Uh, Savarsson. Okay. Oscar Savarsson. I'm swallowing the G and the D, Oscar. I hope that's more or less right. It was, as always, delightful to hear Mark rant about Nixon on the last take two, but I'd like to offer a small correction. Okay, go ahead. To his description of the Nixon White House recording system. Mark was correct that Nixon indeed wanted to make sure that history was able to reflect his own greatness accurately. But in fact, it predated him. It had originally been set up by Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon B. Johnson, as a system to record all his calls and meetings. Nixon just kept using the same system. This taping system has contributed enormously to our understanding of history, given that it recorded the decision process behind virtually all of Lyndon Johnson's major decisions, including many relating to the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, as well as his great society programs, capital G, capital S. It is truly a treasure trove of history. In addition to the important events recorded in these tapes, there is also audio of various other miscellaneous goings-on inside the Oval Office. I would like to highlight one particular clip. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. Made to the Hagger Clothing Company, where Lyndon Johnson orders a few pairs of trousers and asks, <laughs> and asks for some adjustments. Now, another thing the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. They're just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So... Leave me, uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper ends, uh, round uh, under my, back to my bunghole. So I can let it out there if I need to. So, there you have the President of the United States referring to his crotch, his bunghole, and clearly burping like a child does. You know when your when your youngster decides to burp in your face, that's clearly what the president was doing. Anyway, Oscar Sivarsson says um, uh, the full version is widely available. Anyway, Tinky Tonkin down with past terrible U.S. presidents. Um, wow! Last time I wrote uh, with a recording of various Swedish names and how to pronounce them correctly. That's amazing. Challenged Simon to pronounce my name. Uh, correctly, Simon did a fantastic job. It was the highlight of my week. His Danish seems to be coming along, but that's not the same as Swedish. Anyway, Oscar Sivarsson, <laughs> I'm going to go with that anyway. Box office top 10 yes. at 24, The Dam Don't Cry. Which I think is a really, really interesting film. And in a way, the title, although obviously the title is actually referenced to a previous film, the title is slightly misleading. It's actually a very, very moving and powerful film about a relationship between a mother and a son, both of whom are trying to find their own way in a very, very hostile world. I thought it was really well worth seeing. I've never heard of the bunghole before. <laughs> you, that's really stuck with where, you, hasn't it? Where did that come from? I was going to say, where is it? Is that quite a well-known... Uh, it's, no, it's not one I've right, heard before. Okay, People have used many, many phrases that I haven't heard that's before. That's right, but I also don't quite... Anyway. <laughs> he said it was like riding a razor. Anyway, number 10 here, uh, number 11 in the States is The Flash. Which, you know, is still out there. Why have you jumped over Naomi Lewand and smoking causes coffee? Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, 
Number 19. Thank you. Name me Luand. Which I think is terrific. This is Ed Lovelace's documentary about Luand who comes here and it, it was born deaf and learns to sign and comes out of his shell from the Derby School and then suddenly finds his family under threat of deportation. It is a really moving and uplifting documentary. Number 15 is Smoking Causes Coughing. Which is... One of the oddest films uh, out at the moment, and it's the real triumph of it is, despite the fact that it is, it begins with what appears to be the mighty morphing Power Rangers fighting a giant turtle, it manages to be weirdly emotionally engaging. Because if you bung something... I, I know this, you're not going to get over this, are you? Well, no, but a bung is something that you insert, isn't it, to, to, yeah. to stop a leak. <laughs> Well, also a bung is a bribe, isn't it? Or did he say bumhole? I thought that's what he said. I thought he said he said. I, I thought he said bumhole. Well, on look, on my out cue, it's been written as yeah, bumhole. Yeah, I think that's a mistranscription. I thought he said. Can bumhole. we play it again? I know we're interrupting the top ten, but I would just like to. But you know, we have our priorities. They cut me under there, so leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about an inch from the where the zipper. Is. Uh, ends uh, round uh, under my back to my bunghole. All right, then. So I can let it out there if I need to. No, it does sound like he says bung. It does. I'm afraid that's a I'm bung. I'm sorry. He, I'm sorry. He says bunghole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, wow. I just don't get what the bung would be doing because wow. a bung is supposed to stop things coming out, stop a leak. <laughs> the White House plumbers wouldn't have been able to plumb if there'd been a bung. Let me Google it, okay? I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this, so... Keeping an eye on the clock, keeping an eye on the clock. Yeah, it's fine. Bunghole Cellars is a place in Hoban. Butthole Surfers were a band that John Peel played quite a lot. But, yeah, but you know. Bunghole Liquors in Peabody, Massachusetts. I really think we should be moving on Here we on go. Now. Dictionary. An aperture through which a cask can be filled or emptied is a bunghole. Okay. Or urban dictionary, as we just heard on the headphones, vulgar slang for the doodah. <laughs> anyway, so thanks very much, Lyndon B. Johnson, for your crudity. <laughs> anyway, so the flash, we've done all that. So yeah, the yeah. flash at 10, we've done that. Yeah, we've done that. Transformers Rise of the Beast is at nine. It's okay, it's not bad. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, is at eight, number I 10 in the it. States. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good fun. And it's, again, it's, you know, has a message of accepting difference. And there is a very good joke in it about why you blew. I'm from Canada. Number seven here, seven in the States, no hard feelings. You know, it's done better than I thought. Um, this is its third week in the charts. I thought it was completely misjudged and completely not funny. But evidently, it's found an audience. So... What do I know? Asteroid City, another chance for you to do the joke, is number, number six. Such number a pain 12. in the bunghole should have been called Hemorrhoid City. <laughs> and that's not my joke, it's incidentally. It's going to take me a joke. while to get over Lyndon B. Johnson, I must say. Do you think the B stands for bunghole? <sighs> I mean... <laughs> anyway, so, um, where are we? Oh, yes, The Little Mermaid's at five. Yeah, which is kind of fun and uh, nice to like since it annoyed all the right people. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is at number four, number five in the States. Done terrifically well now at number six, but it's, you know, it, it was, of all of those films, if you were going to do, a, you know, a, a, a multiverse movie, that was the one to see because it was smart and funny and the animation was really well done. Insidious, The Red Door now, is at number three. I haven't seen it because it wasn't screened. I will go and see it this weekend. If anyone has seen it, let me know. But I'm, I mean, you, know, you say that now. But you probably... We'll get to next week and you go, I know, I was planning to go... I'll tell you what I'll do when it comes to streaming. 
So you're not going. So you've already. So within one. 30-second clip. You've I gone from, I'm going to see it this you. weekend. I don't to, want there to be lies in our relationship. I'm not going to see it this weekend. No. So are you going to see it this weekend or no. not? You're not. No. So, but you said that you would. But and then I took it back. Okay. So You must have done those things. You said, I'll paint the garage door. Will you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that's a job for a specialist. Employ a painter to do that. Okay. If well, you do it yourself, it's scabbing. Okay, you are you are taking work wow. away. You are taking that work was weaponized fast. That's right. This is uh, Jeremy Hardy doing DIY is scabbing. The late Jeremy Hardy said on a Radio Four program, this is genius. It, it was his way of getting out of DIY because <laughs> obviously he's just not very good at DIY. Okay, right. He said my way of looking at it is because it, it fitted his political terminology. He said it's scabbing. You're taking away work from talented people. So that's why I haven't that's painted the garage good. door because there's a there's a garage door painter down there. That's yeah. his job. Well, Let's it is true, it is true that the good lady professor her indoors says, are you going to put those shelves up? The answer is, would you like them to stay up? Because if so... Get a shelver to do Get a shelver to do it. To do it. The thing. Um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, number two here, Indiana number two. Jones. In, I said Indiana. Indi you didn't, I, you I said did. Indiana. I did you not. Didn't, go back, just do the go back 20 seconds, you hear, he said Indiana. I did not. Everybody heard. I did not say Matter that. of record, don't edit that bit, all right? Everybody heard I definitely it. said Indiana Jones. Toby Jones. Indiana, Toby Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Toby Jones does steal every single scene and it was terrific to see him have a lot to do. But it's... And he's Phoebe Waller-Bridge's dad. He is. Imagine that. <laughs> no. uh, and UK number one, uh, four in the States is Elemental. So bear in mind, the reason Mission Impossible isn't in this chart is that Mission Impossible opened on Monday, so the yes. first time it will be in chart is the next chart, at which point it will have had the biggest opening weekend possible. I am going to make a prediction. That it's going to be number one. I think it probably will be. Is that your top of the pops? Absolutely. That's the way it Smash works. Smash-a-rama. Yeah. Anyway, Daniel... Um, Braunold, I would say. Yeah. Daniel Braunold. Dear Fire and Water, last week the good directing marketing officer, her indoors, and myself took our energetic children, ages five and eight, to the new Pixar film, Elemental, okay. in our local multiplex. With sufficient quiet snacks brought for young and gin in our water bottles, we settled to watch a new colourful animation that will have eaten up the afternoon. My partner and I agree with Mark. Last week's interview with the director was a wonderful really interview moving. and it gave us a new insight into the film. We summarised that the message was great but the delivery fell short. For me, the issue with the film is that my head couldn't get past the physics of it. In other, in other Pixar films... I do understand that. A huge amount of thought and research went into them. How clever Inside Out was in relation to what we think of yeah, how yeah. the brain works. Or that simply the beauty of the story that allows you to be swept away with films such as with Up. But with Elemental, I couldn't get past the concept of elements being limited to their, in quotes, power yep. and how they try to interact with the world around them yet still able to live their daily lives. Anyway, uh, Tiggy Tong, down with all things Nazi-related. Hello to Jason Daniel Braunold. We did talk about this, that, that there is, and in fact we made the, the same comparison about, with Inside Out, the numbskulls thing works. There is a problem, what was that noise, was that you? Oh, is you doing that? Um, th there is something about the actual setup that doesn't quite work. The fire and the... It doesn't, just doesn't quite ever gel. But what was fascinating, as I said, was when listening to that interview, it made me like the movie a lot more mm. because... It, you it, it, you kind of get what it's doing. You get what it's doing. It doesn't quite work, but you get what it's doing. And, and it, was, it was really lovely to see somebody be so moved talking about it. Interesting to know what the five and eight year old actually thought about it. I mean, you were clearly downing the gin. 
Daniel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I would imagine five and eight-year-old would have come out and went, that, that was good, what yeah. are we going to see next? You know, yeah. because it's... Exactly. Colin Scott in Chesterfield recently saw Elemental for the second time after a somewhat bizarre secret screening a couple of weeks ago, but wanted to hold back my thoughts until after I'd taken my six-year-old and got an idea of it through her eyes. Okay. Definitely a film that will resonate far more with a father-daughter combo going to see it. I thought it was a film about growing up, living your own dream, inclusivity, tolerance, immigration, other people's expectations, and the danger of sponges. It's been underreported. <laughs> As a dad, I absolutely watched it through a prism of willing Ember to follow her own path and had a talk with my own daughter afterwards about the most important thing in my world being her happiness and supporting whatever she wants to do in her life and whoever she wants to be with. Keep up the good work. Hello to Jason. Down with trailers for 12A Barbies getting shown for my six-year-old who loves Barbie but ain't watching the new film with added beat you off jokes in the trailer. So the relevance of that is that I've seen the film because um, talking to Greta Gerwig for next week's programme. Greta Gerwig's on the show next week. Correct. That's fantastic. It's Beach, B-E-A-C-H, but they obviously make it sound somewhat more racy. But I'm... That racy, is one that's of the a race, word that's not used at all. It is one of the uh, more racy jokes. I'm surprised they put that... It, why you can't have a twelve A trailer shown to six year olds? Anyway. Well, it depends what the film that they, you were seeing it with. The, the BBFC rule used to be well, it was Elemental. Could, so, oh, which, got, what when, certificate is Elemental? Must be a, a U or a PG, mustn't it? So it's not going to be a twelve. Okay, that's peculiar because usually the rule, well, it may have changed because I'm slightly out of touch. Was that you could? It's PG. Was that you weren't meant to show trailers for higher certificate film, or maybe that was just in the video. But yeah, the work. I can't keep up with the modern world. Anyway, it is it is a twelve a joke. I'm surprised that they showed it to your six year old. Um, but that's obviously a point that I might be making to Greta Gerwig <laughs> in terms of in terms of who are you who are you aiming Barbie at? I think that's yeah, a very yeah. interesting uh, question. Hopefully, Greta Gerwig will have yeah. Uh, because even if you've seen the, the trailers, you know that Barbie the movie is not aimed at six-year-olds who play with Barbie. Correct. It's much more It's aimed meta. at people who used to be six, yeah. but are now 26. And, and who get a joke about 2001 at the beginning, because a six-year-old is not going to see the, 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 the trailer and go, that's a very funny joke about Stanley Kubrick. More on that next week. Simon Pegg in a moment. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with Rooftop Experiences located at Bossy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challenges and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And on Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. 
Health as Sex and My Boss Live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexatmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexatmyboss.com slash cinema. So we're going to talk Mission Impossible again. As we said at the beginning of this particular podcast, That's the the reason is because they're going for these, the most humongous opening, opening weekend of all time because it opened on Monday. So it will be number one. Whatever happens, yes. it'll be the new number <laughs> one. Right. Anyway. I've no matter to... what happens in the world, Mission Impossible is going to be number one next week. Simon Pegg is back in this movie. He's back playing Benji. Uh, and you'll hear more about his role in just a moment after this clip. Well, you can see the train, right? Yes, I see the train. What about it? And you have a parachute. You got a parachute? What do you expect me to do? Well, just, you know, jump. Just jump? Yeah. I mean, Benji, it doesn't work like that. I'm not that high. There's, there's ledges sticking out everywhere. I'm going to hit them before the parachute even opens. Even, Benji, even if I could get the parachute open, I don't know if I can make it across the valley and intercept and land safely on a moving train. Do you copy? Yes, I copy. Look, I'm just trying to help you, okay? I need you to take a step back and pull yourself together because I am under a lot of pressure right now. That's a clip from Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. One of its stars is Simon Pegg. Hello, Simon, how are you? I'm, I'm fine, Simon. How are you? I'm good, Simon. <laughs> that hair you've got is spectacular. Well, you know what? I've had the same haircut for three years because I've been in continuity since we started shooting. And we came to the press tour and I thought, right, scorched earth. It looks great. Anyway, Thank you. So, it, so I don't even know where, where to begin. It introduces to the movie. There's so much to talk about, but just introduces to this latest Mission Impossible adventure. Yes, well, I mean, as... Always seems to be the case with these films, and it's down very much to Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise together. It ratcheted up the, the stakes and the tension another notch. We're up against an enemy we've never really encountered before in this film, in any of the films. Uh, there is a human emissary working for it, but essentially we are fighting an artificial intelligence called the Entity. And it's kind of a sort of supersized version of what the IMF is. Our, our team has always been about subterfuge and masks and, you know, uh, creating sort of theatrical moments to kind of dupe people. This thing is the ultimate manipulator of the truth. So it really is the most awesome challenge we've ever faced as a group. What, what, what's fascinating about that as a topic is that AI has kind of entered the pu public discourse in the last kind of six, 12 months. Yeah. But this movie started its journey a long time ago. It did, yeah. So is that Christopher McQuarrie as the screenwriter who's thinking, who's just ahead of everybody else? I think, well, when he pitched me the idea in 2019, when we were in preparation for what was originally going to be the start date of the movie, I thought, yeah, this feels very Mission Impossible. It's kind of tech-related. It's a little bit sci-fi, but it doesn't kind of, it's not too much for Mission Impossible, which always been, has been along those lines. And here we are three years later, and it's the absolute zeitgeist. It's what everyone's talking about. So that's Chris just being, you know, super prophetic. My understanding is that you were starting, you were about to film, and then when pandemic and lockdown hit, it was like two days before or something like that. Anyway, yeah. so so you you shut down. Can you just say something about the impact of COVID on on the making of this film and how you recovered? Because I think it was the first Hollywood movie to pick up again after lockdown. Yeah, it was. We were in Venice, which is where the first sort of significant outbreak took place. And uh, we were about to... Sh I, I hadn't got there yet, but a few of the cast members had. Tom wasn't in there. There was a big story about Tom fleeing Venice, but he, he didn't actually get there. Rebecca was there. Isai was there. 
And I was called and they said, just don't come for a week. I was literally the day before I traveled. They said, don't, don't come, we're just trying to figure something out. There's something happening. Then of course, two weeks later and you know, the whole thing was shut down completely. And then we spent lockdown figuring out, Tom kept training, Tom was determined to not let it stop the shoot. He made a lot of phone calls, he started to figure out the logistics and we pretty much wrote the rule book of how to shoot a film in a pandemic because Tom is not a man to be sort of stopped. <laughs> you no, know? we get that impression. Yeah, and, and, and we just, we figured out how to carefully and responsibly shoot in those circumstances whilst protecting everybody on the crew, everybody in the cast, everybody related to the film. For Tom, it was a, a matter of saving not only our film, but all film, you know, because I think he felt a kind of existential threat to cinema generally, and that's his ultimate passion. So for Tom, he was facing off against a villain he'd never faced before. So just remind us about your role, remind us about Benji, where and where he kind of fits in the, uh, in the story. Yeah, Benji Dunn is a, he was a lab technician that used to kind of like, you know, sort out hard drives for Ethan back in the day. This is back in Mission Impossible 3. And then in the gap between 3 and Ghost Protocol, J.J. Uh, Abrams called me one day and said, how would you feel it if Benji was an agent in the I field? i say that's just a great line. J.J. <laughs> Abrams called me up one day. And I know that's, that's just great. That's his way though. That's, I mean, he called me to ask me to be in it in the first place. You know, he's very hands-on. Rather than go through the reps and do the whole thing, he'll just call and say, hey, do you want to do this? He did it with Star Trek, Star Wars, and this. And... Um, and so when I did Ghost Protocol, Benji was then in the team. He's out in the field. He's the technician. He's the guy that does the hacking, the IT, the sort of, you know, the, the logistics of the missions. I'm always on the B side of all the big stunts. So I'm the guy telling Tom <laughs> what to go and jump off, <laughs> you know, which I'm perfectly happy with. But he's become a more capable, more mature, more experienced member of the team as the films have gone on. I've done five of them now. And I've, it's been a privilege to kind of have the opportunity to, to grow that character and build on what's gone before each time. And there's a great chemistry between you and Ving Rhames and you're, when you're all sitting there with Tom and yeah. working out what we're going to do and yeah. what's the next incredible thing that we're going to have to sort out. It feels as though you're... You're good mates at that point. Yeah, well, that team, well, Tom and Ving, I, you know, I met them for the first time at the same time on the set of Mission Impossible 3. They sort of walked out of a door and they were both there and it was very much getting thrown in at the deep end. Deep end. Both of them were incredibly patient with me. I was doing this huge monologue I'd only got the day before. I was nervous. I kept getting it wrong. Tom was so kind of good at saying, it's okay, you're going to nail this, you're going to crush this, you know. <laughs> and yeah, so every time now we get together and it's me, Tom Ving and Rebecca Ferguson, that feels like the real core team and we always have a lot of fun. And I would imagine when you work with someone like, like Tom with that level of commitment, which you've already alluded to, it must rub off on everybody. A hundred percent. I mean, he would never turn around and, and give orders, but you just sort of like you feel obliged in a way, in the same way that he feels obliged to deliver the most sort of authentic kind of thrilling experience for the cinema goer by doing all those stunts himself, you know. Well, you feel obliged to just like step up to the plate and, and do the same, because otherwise I think you'd just vanish into the background or you wouldn't be able to keep up. The, I think we can talk about it because the, the little clip was out on YouTube, it's been there for quite a while, where, yeah. where Tom drives off the cliff, which I think is in Norway, and then yeah. parachute, and he does it six times or something. Yeah. When you get to that bit in the film, it's, it, it's actually added to the thrill of, of the ride because you know he's doing it for real. You exactly. know that this is him. I mean, you kind of assume that anyway, but it's such an incredible stunt. And that was the first day of filming? 
It was the first day of filming, partly because obviously having that hanging over him for the shoot would be a bit stressful. Also, That's practically right. speaking, you know, you get those things out of the way because if you shoot a big, a big part of the film and then you shoot that and something goes wrong, then that's going to cause problems, you know. So it's a very, very eventful first day. And I think the thing about Tom, he knows that when you hand over to a stunt professional in any other film series, the acting stops. It just the stunt. It's just the stunt then, because the stunt professional isn't the actor. Tom knows two things. One, if the actor does the stunt, then the character never leaves the moment. And two, if the audience know that it's happening, if they know they're not watching CGI or VFX or or something that's been you know is artificially created, there's more of a sense of danger and heart-stopping kind of thrill because it's not only Ethan Hunt that's jumping off a cliff, it's Tom Cruise. And I think he, he really understands the value of that authenticity, you know. Does everyone else worry? Yes! I, I was up there, because I was giving lines for the, the scene when he skids to the edge of the mountain and we had that little exchange, because I'm the one sending him up there. And then we all, all of us went up the mountain, we got helicoptered up this mountain to stand and watch it, because it, it felt slightly preferable to just being back at the hotel waiting to hear if it had all gone well. So we watched him do it seven times on that second day. I think he already, he'd already done it like twice the day before. And there would be a, a moment when he'd go off the end and he'd disappear. And then there'd just be a pause because he free falls for a little bit. He actually delivers a line in free fall. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not allowed. <laughs> but not just free fall, but free fall at, at base jump level. He's, he's so close to the ground. And then we'd get the radio signal, good canopy, which meant that his chute had opened and he would probably get to the ground safely. There's always the chance that there'd be a gust of wind, but good canopy was what we were waiting for. And that, that moment would stretch into an eternity when he went off the cliff. It was genuinely, I mean, imagine how thrilling it is in the film to see it live. I have it on my phone. Wow. <laughs> I was filming it. I want to ask you something else about AI because I, I was listening to an interview that Christopher McQuarrie gave to Craig Mazin on the Script Notes podcast. Yeah. So he was talking about AI as impacting on the uh, the Screenwriters Guild strike, which yeah. is as we speak um, on ongoing. Yeah. And he was saying that the that the threat to your industry uh, as a writer and an actor is that AI can reproduce mediocrity. It can be mediocre drama. It can do mediocre comedy. What it can't be is exceptional. Mm -hmm. But, he, but Christopher McQuarrie was making the point that none of us are exceptional out of the box. We right. all have to be a bit mediocre to start with. And that that's the threat, that writers aren't going to get a chance to be kind of average. Yeah. Because QI can do that. I just wonder how you see it as a, as a writer yourself. Well, I think the writing process, you know, it is a process. And you do, when you write a first draft, you, you, you write something that you know is going to improve and you will improve. If we get AI to write those first drafts the whole time, people are only ever going to be, you know, doctoring scripts or giving notes. There's going to be no sort of genesis in them, no kind of heart. I read a funny thing that says AI hasn't had any childhood trauma, so it's never going to make good art, you know. But it's true. And I think AI is, is, is going to be a potentially incredible tool when it comes to things like space travel or environmental protection, problems we can't solve yet, medicine, you know. But it has no feelings that it cannot abstractly interpret, so it can't make art. You can use it as a paintbrush, perhaps. But I think the idea of, of it being present in the creative space, 
it might be a good thing in that it will stop us from being mediocre. You know, there is a lot of me mediocrity out there sometimes. Things that pass for entertainment are not quite as good as they should be. So if it ups our game because we want to sort of escape the velocity of this, you know, creeping threat, then, you know, it's a good thing. But I don't think, until it has feelings of its own and it can make art about being we, an AI. We, we don't want it to have feelings <laughs> of its own. <laughs> you don't know it's going to hate us. We always think it's going to make that calculation about humanity not being worth, you know, preserving. It says a lot about how we feel about yeah. ourselves, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're in therapy a lot. <laughs> you mentioned earlier when you talk about the J.J. Abrams that you've been in Star Wars, Star Trek and Mission Impossible, three yeah. of the biggest titles ever. Is there anyone else that has done all three? The big one, that the sci-fi one is Star Trek, Star Wars and Doctor Who, you know, which is the kind of like sci-fi triumvirate for the, for the super nerds. But, um, well, Palm and Haley are both Marvel girls, you know, they're both been in Avengers and stuff, and I mean, Tom's the one. He's been in so many Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I just think, you know, there is, there is, there is something about... Also, the other thing, you, you were in a drama, uh, The Undeclared War. Yeah. Uh, on television about uh, GCHQ and cyber attacks and so on. And what that and this movie and the Mission Impossible have in common, it seems to me, is that it's, what are we worried about? Yeah. What is making us nervous when we go into the cinema? It's not the Cold War anymore. No. I mean, maybe it will be. Uh, maybe there'll be another one and then we'll have movies about Russia and so on. But it's yeah. actually cyber attacks. It is AI. And that's the genius of this film is that we are genuinely worried. Yeah. Well, it says in the movie that when they speak of the entity, they say it started on social media and in the news. But that served our purpose, the American government is saying. And you could almost see that as something that is happening now. There is a lot of AI at work in social media. There are a lot of bots out there. There are a lot of trolls that are, you know, manned operatives that actually pretend to be from certain countries to stir up disorder and, you know, separate people. Um, these are all very real threats. These are things that are happening now. So it's definitely on our minds, yeah. Well, the great achievement, one of the achievements, it seemed to me, of this movie is that it's two hours, 43, and it felt like an hour and a half. Yeah. It was, it's an incredible film. When you were on Desert Island Discs recently, you said that when you were growing up, you had a list. I think maybe when you were a student, you had a list of people that you wanted to work with. Yeah. Does that list, is that an actual list uh, and you're kind of crossing people <laughs> off or is it just back of your head? Well, there are always people coming through as well. So the list is always, you know, I've been so lucky to work with, you know, particularly someone like Steven Spielberg, who, who is someone that I grew up sort of appreciating and that was a genuine kind of dream come true moment. But there are there are filmmakers who are established and filmmakers who break through, like the Daniels who came through last year, particularly with Everything Every All at Once, who are, their first film, Swiss Army Man, is great. But, you know, I, it's really fun to sort of like meet those guys and say, hey, you know, next time you make a film, I'm, I'm around. Because you always want to work with with interesting people. What you don't want to do is mediocrity. That's the thing, you want to work with exceptional people. And where are we with part two? I mean, obviously you can't tell us anything about it, but are you in, are you in production? Are you actually filming? Well, this is the thing. If I, if I said that I was filming, it would mean that I survived part one. Now, the people that haven't seen the film, you know, so I can't confirm or deny, as we say in the IMF, but I know that Mission Impossible 2 is indeed filming, and anyone in Mission Impossible 2, part two, will be going back to shooting immediately after the press tour which is a very strange thing because it's like we've promoted a movie and then we're just going back to filming it again. Well, if indeed you do make it through part one, we look forward to seeing you in part two. And if yeah. you don't make it to the end of part one, commiserations <laughs> and all the best for the future. I can guarantee that part two will be bigger and more spectacular. It is not possible, surely. You'd be surprised. Really? Yeah. 
bigger than what I've just seen. Yeah. Okay, next summer it is. <laughs> Simon Pegg, thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Good to see you. And having seen Mission Impossible, the idea that the stunts should, in part two, were even better. I know. How? How is that possible? Because as you and I, because we saw it together, and the last half and the last movement, the movement that begins with the stunt that everyone's talking about, which is the setup. That's not even the thing. That's the setup. Which we heard. Which we heard in the clip is where, yeah. which is where, where you see. Uh, Tom on his motorbike at the edge of the cliff. Uh, to be honest, just riding up to the edge of the cliff on a motorbike looks like ludicrous behaviour. <laughs> terrifying. But that whole last extended sequence, I, I honestly was starting to hyperventilate and go, make it stop, make it stop. I, and can't, I can't bear the tension. And yes, I am aware, listening through to that uh, interview, that I confused AI with QI and <laughs> referred to the this terrible threat as QI. QI. Um, <laughs> So obviously that was a ludicrous thing uh, to juxtapose. To juxtapose. Um, Louis, or possibly Lewis, anyway, whichever you'd rather. I'll go with Louis. Dear Dead Reckoning Part 1 and Part 2, I saw Mission, the latest Mission Impossible last night on your recommendation. Mm -hmm. I've not seen any of the others in the cinema. Okay. I thought it was brilliantly entertaining. Some of the most thrilling set pieces I've ever seen. It was funny throughout, even if many of the laughs were incidental, laughing at the absurdity of the stakes or the delivery of certain lines. Of course, it, of course it was preposterous throughout. That's to be expected of a Mission Impossible film. But I thought by far the most unbelievable moment, more than the AI villain, the death-defying stunts or the futuristic gadgets, was just how empty Venice was. <laughs> Venice is never empty. Dozens of alleys. That is absolutely true. Not a single soul to be seen, yet restaurants were open, the supposedly clandestine party was heaving and plenty of gondolas for guests. Maybe that's maybe that is COVID because as you just heard Simon Pegg was explaining. Yeah, but also it's because they're making a Mission Impossible film, so you're not allowed on the set when they're... Like, if people, two people are having a fight on a bridge, you're not just going to have tourists taking photographs of each other. Uh, and then Louis slash Lewis says, presumably they filmed during lockdown when tourist numbers dwindled and the city was emptier than it's been in decades, if not centuries. How else could they have booked out the Doge's Palace? Anyway, I wonder <laughs> whether they changed the location to Venice because of the possibilities that lockdown there offered the production. Nonetheless, there was something eerie about an empty Venice as if something terrible had happened to the world beyond the lagoon, <laughs> Although, precisely the kind of disaster the IMF are tasked with stopping. Down with AI, up with striking writers, says Lou. And as you heard in that interview, uh, they were always going to Venice because that's where they were, you know, because they cancelled it just ahead of the first lockdown. Although I would say that if you've seen Don't Look Now, don't a lot of Don't Look Now, I know Don't Look Now is technically off-season, but it's, the, the streets of Venice through which Donald Sutherland chases are empty. And I went to Venice a few years ago, and it's true, you can't move. I mean, it's absolutely rammed. But, you know, films set in Venice, I mean, uh, Wings of the Dove has got that sequence in Venice, and it's... It, the streets once again are empty. Uh, Bob Smithy via our YouTube uh, channel, because the whole of this episode is is available with pictures. And who wouldn't want to see that? Quite well, my family. Um, it says AI is not a new subject matter in films. It's been around for many decades. Mm. Examples: Terminator, 
1982 was about AI controlling Earth. Skynet took over and the humans waged war to reclaim the planet. 2001, okay. Space Odyssey. From 1968, Spaceship AI Computer Hal attempts to kill the crew. Westworld, 1973, AI Robot attempts to kill customers. Maybe the definitive AI film of them all. War Games in 1983, a military supercomputer tricks humans into playing a real-life nuclear war simulation. The computer, Whopper, War Operation Plan Response has advanced artificial intelligence and accurately predicts the responses of humans. And going back even further, Colossus, the Forbin project in 1970, which basically provided the template for War Games Whopper and Terminator Skynet, has a similar setup with control of US defense being handed to an AI in order to remove the possibility of human error from the equation. But the AI then establishes contact with another AI like itself, which turns out to be its Russian equivalent, which they didn't know about the existence of and it gets more interesting from there and it's well worth the watch i think the main difference is that all of those things were very futuristic and we go wow that would be scary yeah, yeah. and now ai is in every part of our lives and is threatening to sort of rechange uh, to to change and rearrange lots of people's jobs and so on and so in a way that skynet didn't in you never watched that and thought i hope skynet doesn't get rid of my job <laughs> uh, you might watch this and go oh yeah do you remember the original trailer for Westworld, which had the most brilliant tagline, which was, it was in the, you know, the, the, the movie trailer that you would see in the cinema, you know, a, a, a futuristic world in which nothing can go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. Anyway, so my outrageous prediction is still that Mission Impossible uh, will be number one. Yes. Uh, and once you've seen it, please let us know what you think. Correspondence at CoburnAmer.com. Uh, I think, I mean... The Laughter Lift is going to be on. It's not very good edition of The Laughter Lift. Why is that? Well, you're about to find out. Okay. Not a lot of laughter is basically it. <laughs> so it's music. just a lift? Yes, just the lift. <laughs> okay. Hey, Mark. Did hey, you, Simon. Did you hear the news from Dorset's Jurassic Coast? No. They found a fossilised dinosaur fart. It's a real blast from the past. You see what I mean? That's, that's really... Who wrote that? The redactor. He's not here. I know. Why do you think he's not here? <laughs> to face the wrath. Can you text him? Dear Simon Paul. Why can't you hear a pterodactyl dinosaur go to the toilet? Because it has a silent P. Because it's written P pterodactyl. Right, the P is silent as in bath, yeah. Uh, You're not even trying with no, this now. Okay. I say, I say, why can't dinosaurs clap? They've got small front hands. Because they're all dead. What's a front hand? You know, the, we, we yeah, could just hands, so just hands. hands. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other ones? That's much funnier than Okay, fine. There we go. Do yeah. it again. Why can't dinosaurs clap? Because they've got small front hands. And also they're dead. <laughs> also, why don't dinosaurs make good pets? Um, because they're dead. Because they're all dead. Anyway, that is precisely right. What else is to come, please? Is that, was that actually right? That's actually right. Wow, okay. Squaring the Circle, a documentary about, you say it, Squaring the circle, Get, getting a circle and making it square. Hip good noses. Hip, thank you very much. And uh, While We Watch, which is a documentary about news reporting in India. Uh, we'll be back after this, unless you're a vanguardista, in which case we have just one question. How far can you walk into the woods? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And the answer, of course, to how far can you walk into the woods, the answer yes. is, of course, halfway after which you're walking out. Oh, actually, that's a better joke than any of the dinosaur jokes. Anyway, Tom says, uh, hello, 401st most popular name in England and Wales, and hello, 241st most popular name. That's hello, Simon. Hello, hello. Mark. Yeah. Glad you witted on about names again this week. It reminded me I got halfway through this the week before and then forgot to finish it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thought you'd like to Thank know... You. There were 207 marks born in England and Wales in 2021, the latest available data, but just 107 Simons. That's an average of a new Simon just over twice a week, about the same rate as these podcasts. I wonder if there's a connection. In terms of popularity, Simon and Mark both peaked in the mid-70s. And, and, <laughs> and as baby names as well. Right. Some names that are more... Po- and we had two Simons, so me and Simon Pegg, so we've had two Simons on... So. Maybe. Some names that are more popular than either Simon or Mark include Oscar with a K. What? 230. That's R- more popular than Simon or Mark? Yes. Ryan. Ryan? Two, no. R-A-Y-A-N. No, really? 264 of them. And I'm surprised. Maximus. 293. There are 293 Maximuses more than Maximus. Simon or Mark. <laughs> Less popular in 2021 than either of our names. Go on. Boris, <laughs> yeah, <I've> got, 39. <laughs> Nigel, 8. And Donald, just the one. I do I'm genuinely amazed there's only one Donald in the whole of 2021. I mean, for good reason, obviously. <laughs> but anyway, I'm not, Tom says, I'm not sure if Sancho Panza is a sensible name, but then there's only been four Sanchos registered in England and Wales since 1996, all of them in 2004. So it sounds like the 2003 Don Quixote convention might have been a rather wild one. <laughs> Hello to Jason, 251 of them, and Isaac. So there's more Jasons than there are Simons yeah. or Marks. And Isaac, 1,888. Really? So that's the big growth name, Isaac. I, Isaac is the most popular of all of those names. Wow. Signed by Tom, brackets, I won't embarrass you with how popular I am. So presumably there are loads of Toms. Yeah. But every, that makes us rare and to be cherished. What's the joke where every Tom, Dick and Harry is called Mark nowadays? Oh, that works. Alex says, um, on an episode a few weeks ago, you mentioned... Teacher's strategy of reading the question before doing an exam. We've mentioned it several times. That's right. Read the flipping question. It, however, brought horrific memories of my AS-level history exam on the Tudors. Like every history student, we were put through the many trials and tribulations of that family, and we studied them to death. That's a strange punishment, but a medieval punishment. (laughs) We're going to study until you're dead. During my first year examination... (laughs) 
one that did not count towards my grade, but would be looked at by potential universities. I read the question. To what extent was Henry VIII's foreign policy dictated by international prestige? To me, this was a dream of a question. Due to His Majesty's small man syndrome, international approval is all he ever wanted, similar to certain politicians today. Okay, yeah. I wrote an excellent answer to this and was ecstatic coming out of the exam hall. All was about to change. I spoke with my best friend, asking about how he found the Henry VIII question. And he said... What do you mean? Both questions were on Henry VII. Oh! My heart dropped. I misread the question. A single line, a single digit no. was the cause of my downfall and it was too late to change anything. I hadn't read the question properly and now that entire exam was worthless. Even now, I still curse that line. All is well. However, uh, it might have meant that I was not able to go to my first choice university, but I still got a good history degree at the end. The friend I spoke to after my exam is becoming a teacher in the autumn, and I've told him he can always use me as an example of why you should read the question. From Alex, University of Warwick History First Class Honours, Tossel Hall Survivor 2018. Very good. So that is actually the uh, that is a first class university, Tossel Hall, being uh, when I was there. Uh, one of the most horrible places that it's possible to live as a student. So I got a text... Particularly Tossel 46. Tossel Flats. Tossel Flats, terrible. I got a text from uh, Jay Rayner, which said, I'm sure you've been told this, but we were Oxford and Cambridge exam board. Now, the reason for this is because I said that when I did my history O-level, there was a mistake in the question. They got one, the, 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 the date of a treaty wrong, and I was trying to find out what it was in order to prove that I should have got a B, not a C, for my history O-level, okay? So I was born in 19, July the 2nd, 1963. You do your O-levels when you're in the fifth form, so that would have been... Six, what, what's, what's, what's You do it, it's your story. Would you know, help me with this. What? When would I when would I've done my O levels? So sixty three, seventy three. When were you born? Second of July, nineteen sixty three. Yeah. So I was six. Nineteen seventy eight. Would it be seventy eight or seventy nine? I don't know. No, well, it, de well, it depends. Okay. It's your life. Right. Okay. Jay then goes on to say, no clue on the question because I am so very much younger than you. But probably the Treaty of Utrecht. It often was. I don't think it was the Treaty of Utrecht. I tried to find this, but I can't. So if there's anybody out there in the academic world, okay, who can find me the Oxford and Cambridge O-level history exam for either 1978 or 1979, in, the, in one of those papers, there is a mistake in the date of a treaty, and I don't think it was the Treaty of Utrecht. I would love to know because I'm 60 now and, you're and still I've not carried this around with me ever since then. So Oxford and Cambridge exam board O-level, either 78 or 79, and there's a mistake in one of the questions. Do us a film. Have you lost interest in my... No, I'm just pressing on. Okay, fine. So squaring the circle, the story of hypnosis, spelt H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. That the whole thing about where that name came from being one of the things which is dealt with in the documentary about how it came up. It was apparently written on a wall and it was either written by Sid Barrett, possibly, or by a whole bunch of other people, maybe, but nobody's quite sure. So this is made by Anton Corbin, who's the Dutch photographer who made Control and uh, The American and Life. This is his first feature doc, apparently. Story of Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Poe Powell, who were the creative duo behind the company, who went from making album covers for their mates, their mates at that point being, you know, Dave Gilmore and Sid Barrett, to becoming one of the most excess-drenched 
record album sleeve designers in the world. Here's a clip. By the mid-70s, money was really rolling into rock stars' pockets. The albums were selling in millions. The money was gushing in. You know, whether it was Paul McCartney or Led Zeppelin or, or Pink Floyd or Peter Gabriel, they wanted their image to look right on the album cover. This, this, this album cover was a very important asset to them. And so our fortunes changed too. Fees accelerated. We were looking at $50,000 spent on an album cover. I felt a bit like the fifth wheel on the car. You had the four members of the band, and then there was this guy who was also attached to the car that went with them everywhere they went. Peter Grant would say, well, you better get Concord. You better get there tomorrow morning. So there they are, <clears throat> the height of the excess, flying around on Concord. Documentary uses, well, you saw the black and white monochrome interviews, which include Paul McCartney, Noel Gallagher, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Peter Gabriel, Glenn Matlock, wow. Nick Mason, Dave Gilmore, but Roger Waters. Oh, well, he's oh, part yeah. of the story. Exactly. Animation, archive images, clips from Repulsion, because there's a thing about Repulsion being shot in one of the buildings that they were working in. We hear the story about them bonding after a drug bust when one of them didn't run away and the other one was impressed, so they kind of became like us against the world. That that name, hypnosis, which is a pun on Gnostic, meaning, you know, oh, okay, no, yeah. which, which kind of, but no one's quite sure where it came from. So you go through the story of Atom Heart Mother. Dave Gilmore's very funny. He says the whole idea was, we have a picture of a cow because it doesn't mean anything, but it failed because it came to mean things because people looked at it and they saw meaning in it. You see, you hear about, oh, the setting up a band on the run, getting all those people and point this lovely behind the scenes yeah. footage of doing that. Dark Side of the Moon, apparently Rick Wright originally said he wanted it to look like a black magic box of chocolates for no reason that anyone understands. Venus and Mars with the billiard balls. Apparently Paul McCartney's slogan was, it's all balls, okay. which is funny. Peter Gabriel doing the cat scratch stuff. And then the story of Wish You Were Here. The fact, Wish You Were Here, the guy really was on fire. They say it was a metaphor, you get burnt by the music industry, but he really was on fire. And then it all leads up to the cover of Animals, in which what they did was they had a huge inflatable pig. They literally flew the pig over Battersea Power Station, rather than superimpose it front, took photographs of it, and the wire broke, and the pig went up into the air, into the air lanes coming into Heathrow Airport. So they had to <laughs> shut down all the air traffic, and the pig kept going, and they couldn't catch it because the police marksman wasn't there to shoot it out of the sky. Finally ended up in someone's farm, and then at the end of the day, they just put it on afterwards because they didn't get the shot. So they just cut one out and stuck it on the thing. So the whole thing was, it's kind of brilliant. I mean, I really liked it. I liked the, the, the stories behind the album covers. And if like me, you're somebody who, you know, Noel Gallagher talks about, um, he says this thing, he said, rich people have art on the walls. Poor people have art on the floor, on their album covers. Or so, and then he says, I don't know who said that. It's so brilliant, it must have been me, which is quite funny. Fair enough. But it's, I thought it was a really gripping documentary and oddly moving. So anyway, where, where do I see that? It's in cinemas in and cinemas. also on But, you know, it's, it's really worth checking out. Because it's sort of like a lost art, really, because no one really pays any... Because by the time no, no, the, the, the artwork turns up on your phone, it's a few millimetres yes, square. I know, but it was so lovely getting the artwork and reading it. All right, okay. So that's a cinematic release, but presumably will turn up on yes. screen. What else have we got? While We Watch, which is a documentary about NDTV anchor Ravish Kumar, um, who is described in India as the voice of the voiceless. He, he turns his attention to poverty, job losses, infrastructure, while other stations are gaining dissent by screaming, are gaining viewers by screaming about dissent and this kind of very kind of pro-nationalist agenda. And the documentary depicts journalism in India as in crisis, in the same way it is 
elsewhere in the world, that what you have is all these news stations who are basically firing up you know, um, you know, national zeal and describing anybody who is criticizing the government as being anti-national. And what we see is the station signal being blocked. We saw, see their resources dwindling. We see death threats being thrown around after the subject's phone number is posted on Facebook. We see one bit in which he, he gives a lecture to students in which he says, news channels are pitting people against each other. This is becoming an information-less society. And it's about how he continues to want to tell the news even in the face of all this. Here's a, a trailer for the film. वो पत्रकारिता नहीं है सबका कंटेंट एक सा होता जा रहा है इतना बड़ा खबर हो गया आप देख लो कि कहीं चला रहे हो तुम हिंदुस्तान के खिलाफ बातें करता है घर में घुसकर मारेंगे तुझे जब भी सूचना गायब हो जाएगी तब भाषा में हिंसा ही आएगी रवि कुमार आई वन नहीं हो अभी समय है गलत रास्ता छोड़ दो एक डरा हुआ पत्रकार लोकतंत्र में अधमरा नागरिक पैदा करता है नमस्कार मैं रविश कुमार देश को तोड़ने की बात करते हैं हम ये बिल्कुल सहन नहीं करेंगे न्यूज चैनलों के जरिए जहर आपके बीच खोला जा रहा है पूछने वाले को देशद्रोही बताया जाता है वो फॉलो कर रहा था देश से फॉलो कर रहा था so I thought this was really interesting, firstly, because I didn't know the particular story behind it, but the story about how news has been taken over by pe people shrieking, you know, nationalist, patriotic agendas around is, is something with which everyone will be familiar. And there is a kind of sturdiness at the center of it, but this, this guy said, look, these aren't the issues. The issues are really to do with poverty and infrastructure and all these other things. And as a result of that, getting receiving regular death threats, and we we cut between him at work and then him with his daughter at home. And even when he's at home, getting stuff on his phone call saying, you are anti-national, you are anti-national, you are... And then, of course, we we're all leading up to the election. And I thought it was really gripping, really kind of an impressive portrait of somebody who's... It's a sobering story about you're trying to tell the news, you're trying to actually report on what's genuinely happening, and yet you are now surrounded by this kind of huge media enterprise in which the person who shouts most loudly the message that, it, you know, that we must all stand behind the nation, we must all be patriotic, they are the ones that get the, uh, the advertisers and the money and the resources. And it ends with people that run the, the NDTV being arrested. So wow. it's a it's a really, really worthwhile documentary. Then the Prime Minister of India goes to America and is fated by the White House because you want to be friends with India. Precisely. Uh, okay, and that is called? While We Watch. And that is a cinematic yes. release. Yes, and again, again. again, probably online yeah. as well. Sounds like essential viewing. Uh, time for this week's listener uh, correspondence. This is our What's On Guide, stuff that you sent us. You can send yours to correspondence at curvedomeo.com. Let's see who we have this week. Hi, Mark and Simon. I'm James Smith, a UK filmmaker. Now, it strikes me that you're a couple of proper geezers, so I think you'll like this. We're having the London premiere of our comedy feature film Best Geezer at the Courthouse Hotel on the 28th of July at 7pm. The story follows three down-on-the-luck video guys from Essex who aspire to make a proper geezer movie full of gangsters and punch-ups. Things don't go to plan and there are plenty of ups and downs, laughs and tears, all against a great soundtrack. Search for Best Geezer on Eventbrite and get your tickets today. Thank you. 
Hi, Simon and Mark. I'm Millie, and I'm a fashion theorist and historian at Oxford Uni. As part of my doctorate, I'm exploring the sensory entanglement between costume and actors in film. For this, I'm conducting interviews with costume designers, makers, and actors on their experience of costume in film. If you would like to be a part of my research, please email me at millie.cox at classics.ox.ac.uk. That's M-I-L-L-Y dot C-O-X at C-L-A-S-S-I-C-S dot O-X dot A-C dot U-K. Thank you. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Simon from Secret Cinema. This summer, we're bringing Rydell High to life outdoors at the NEC in Birmingham as we present Grease, the live experience. The show opens on the 26th of July and runs for three weeks only. Tickets are available from just £39 at secretcinema.com. Academic email addresses are a riot, <laughs> I know, aren't they? Was, wow. That was, I thought that was the formula for life. James Smith was promoting his new comedy, Best Geezer, fashion theorist with the academic email. That's Millie, wants your help with her PhD research. And another, Simon, see how popular we are, promoting Secret Cinema's Grease event in Birmingham. If you've got a little trailer for us uh, about anything in the world that you're working on, which you think might be cinema-related, correspondence at curbedandmayo.com. Fascinated by the thing about the, the, the physical interaction between costume, and I'd like to know more about what that... that thesis is about. That sounds really interesting. You could get in touch with email. If I could remember the address. Exactly. To remind me what it was. You can go back 30 seconds and write <laughs> it down. That's the end of Take One. This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production. The team was Lily Hamley, Ryan O'Meara, Lovely Ed, Beth Perkin, Mickey Movies, Hannah Talbot and Simon Poole. Not that he bothered to turn up this week. Mark, what is your film of the week? Medusa. Uh, thank you very much indeed for listening. Take Two has landed already. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.